Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Charles Spencer, the author of a book called The White Ship, Conquest, Anarchy and the Wrecking of Henry I's Dream, which is out in paperback this month. Charles, welcome. Now this is a book that it's, it's a centres on the white ship disaster, which we'll, we'll get to, but it really kind of covers everything from the conquest to the coronation of Henry II. And I want to start, if I could, by asking you to sort of paint a bit of a picture of the world we're in. Mm. Because, I mean, you know, Henry I, who's, who's substantially the, the, the centre of the story, you know, he wasn't necessarily going to be king at all. It was quite odd that he was, wasn't it? Yes, this is, um, I, I think this is part of the, the, the sort of backstory of this book is Henry I's opportunism. So he was the fourth and youngest son of William the Conqueror. And we think possibly because he was literate, unlike his brothers or father, that he was destined for the church. But uh, one elder brother who I hadn't heard of called Richard died in a hunting accident. Then we know, of course, William Rufus dies in a hunting accident. And when, when that happens in the summer of 1100, Henry I seizes the throne. And he's a very impressive man, but he was much underestimated at the time. I, I don't think anyone really paid much attention to him. That the sort of more highfalutin nobleman of the time saw him as slightly embarrassing, really. He was this young man who liked to hang out with his own pack of hounds and play in the forest and who could read. This was all thought very odd. So the fact that he became king was, was a huge surprise. But you ask about the sort of tone of this time. I would say it's, without sounding too commercial, it is very Game of Thrones-ish. Whoever could grab the throne convincingly first tended to get it, rather than primogenitor really coming into it. So a brutal time, and that's why Henry I fitted in, because under this sort of vaguely intelligent exterior was a, was a very hard-nosed man. I mean, the cruelty of it is sort of astonishing, because, you know, one thinks of Henry I in as much as one thinks of him at all, as this rather kind of competent, serious king who, you know, founds the modern administrative state and does all these extraordinary things. But, you know, you have him sort of chopping the feet off peasants who are picking up firewood in his forests and he's, he's, he blinds his own granddaughters. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it's very hard for us from this distance to appreciate him because of that cruelty. I suppose in mitigation, I mean, I'm, I am never going to defend him blinding his own granddaughters because it's incomprehensible. And that actually, just so your followers know, it was because of a, a rather short-sighted view of chivalry, uh, not that chivalry had existed, in that his own daughter had blinded a hostage and the boy who was blinded demanded that Henry have his two granddaughters blinded in, in retribution. So terrible. But this does shine a light on Henry I's thinking, which is the rules are the rules. And as you touched upon, he did set up the, the sort of modern ruling state. He, he established the Exchequer, which is still here today, for instance. But my goodness, he was brutal. And I think it's really troubled me this, you know, how appalling the, the, the brutality was. So first of all, the church particularly the papacy, it had some resurgence from the 1070s onwards with Gregorian reform, etc. And the sanctity of human life was very much to the fore. So people tended not to be executed as much, especially if they were high born. But my goodness, you know, you paid for it with your hand or your testicles or your eyes, you know, it was brutal. And I suppose because the, the, the hand, the royal hand only reached so far in terms of imposing law, 
you had to do very startling things to to encourage the others to behave really and I, I look I'm not in any way defending what is appalling but it was probably quite effective and standard for the time maybe this thing you touch on the resurgence of the church because that is part of the sort of background of this story you know William the Conqueror is William the Bastard and he takes the throne but as you say the children born in wedlock have become more important yes so you're right, William, William the Conqueror wasn't known as that during his lifetime, but he was known as William the Bastard, uh, generally by people who were at a fair, fairly safe distance from him because he wasn't one you wanted to upset and he had no sense of humour. But he was the illegitimate son of the previous Duke of Normandy. And as a boy, he became Duke of Normandy. He somehow survived incredible power struggles during his youth. But by the turn of the 11th century, there's absolutely no way that somebody born out of wedlock could become uh, king or duke of England or Normandy. It was just William the Conqueror was the last one who, who was allowed that. And the church, the papacy, if I can be more accurate, the papacy was very keen on recovering its lost prestige and power people will say, and I think they're right, that the Crusades were brought about as another way of enhancing papal authority and respect. But I think you look in the, the context of this book, you mentioned it does cover 90 years from 1066 onwards. It's only at the very beginning of that period that somebody who wasn't born of a married couple could succeed. And this becomes very crucial in, 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 the, in the consequences of the white ship disaster itself. Debbie. Other thing about the, the rise of church and the importance of religion in this book, you know, everybody's swearing oaths. And again, my schoolboy understanding of history is that oaths were really, really serious. You believed if you broke an oath in medieval times, you know, you were, you were going to go to hell. And yet these characters, they're constantly going back on their oaths. I mean, as you know, through the whole history you know people are maneuvering position and they'll swear fealty to one king and then they'll find a way of getting out of it Wasn't well you're right i mean god is at the center of the entire life force at this time and you took him lightly at your peril i mean that was the most interesting thing about researching this book you know all of my apart from the anglo-saxon chronicle which does have a religious tinge to it you know it's basically produced at peterborough cathedral but but all of the contemporary sources i had were churchmen and one church woman. And they saw the hand of God in everything. So yes, an oath was utterly binding, but this was a time until Henry I managed to be both King of England and Duke of Normandy from 1106 onwards, where people had often dual loyalties. You know, the great families of Normandy had huge estates in England as well. So they would blithely swear allegiance to the King of England and the Duke of Normandy and sort of try and fudge it but you know it became very complicated and going back to Henry's cruelty he caught up a, a posse of young noblemen who had sworn allegiance to him and after a battle they expected to be forgiven but I'm afraid he did his old trick of, of blinding and castrating them and in fact one man was so terrified of this that he managed I can't work out how but he managed to kill himself by banging his head against the dungeon wall during the night before his sentence so yeah, the oath was all-consuming. And, 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 and you find the power of God affected everyone, even the sort of bloodiest knights, you know, uh, to, when they knew they were terminally ill. You find them dragging themselves off to monasteries for their final days, hoping that 
they'll have just enough time to get some forgiveness underway before they go to meet their maker. Last minute repentance. There's a, there's a wonderful character in here, actually, who I, I feel almost deserves a book on his own, Robert de Belém. I knew you were going to go for him. Isn't he <laughs> fascinating? Yes, he, he's absolutely appalling. So what I try and do, Sam, because I'm not an intellectual, as <laughs> we've already established during this conversation, but I, I'm a... I'm a storyteller who hangs his story on facts. I'm, I'm what's known as a narrative historian as opposed to an academic one. And so it's very important for me in that guise to find a way of showing an entire theme without being too dry. And thank goodness for Robert de Bellem because he shows that old cliche which our history masters would or mistresses would have punished us for, the overmighty subject. You know, these kings had problems with overmighty subjects because they had enormous wealth and power. And Robert de Bellem and his father and brothers controlled huge chunks of England and bits of Wales and massive amounts of France and uh, Normandy. And they didn't see themselves as inferior to Henry I, particularly because they had a very low regard for him. But Robert de Bellem made the mistake of taking on Henry uh, early in his reign and coming a cropper. And then Henry finally gets him when he's over in Normandy and de Bellem comes to him on a diplomatic mission, so should have been safe. But Henry chucks him into prison and he's forgotten. But the real interest for me in de Bellem, apart from him being so powerful, was his extraordinary cruelty. And he is a man totally rare. I mean, I, I think he's unique in, in this story anyway, who didn't really believe in God. So he's free of an enormous amount of pressure, social pressure or conscience, I think. And so when the monks come and complain to him that he's not taking uh, Lent very seriously, he, he asks them what he's meant to do. And they said, well, you're meant to fast. So he starves 300 prisoners in his dungeons to death as a sort of, what are you gonna do about that to the church? And then awful things. I mean, he, he lost his temper with a godson and, and tore his eyes out. I mean, it is horrifying, some of this stuff. Um, he burns down a nunnery that contains his sister. Maybe I know, not. I don't think anger management was his strong suit, but he came from this very strange line. His mother was an absolute harridan too. This very, very diminutive, but shockingly awful mother, who was also incredibly rich and left him with this, uh, left him with a legacy of fine possessions and a, and a vile temper. Well, actually, you, you say you're a narrative historian rather than an academic one. I mean, what sort of sources do, did you marshal for this? I mean, do you sort of say, I'm not an academic, I can use secondary sources, or did you go back to the originals to get all these? I mean, so many Matildas to untangle. Yeah, that's really tricky for, for, for this period. No, I, there, are only about, there are only nine contemporary sources, the best ones being William of Malmesbury, who is a uh, you know, early 12th century historian, who's still recognised actually as one of the great historians from England ever. And then the rather extraordinarily named but brilliant Orderic Vitalis, who actually came from Shropshire. And his father, again, to show you how important God was, basically sacrificed his uh, family by sending Orderic off to, a, uh, to be an oblate, or a, a sort of trainee monk in Normandy for life, because he assumed that Whatever agony the family went through by effectively losing their son forever, this would be good for the boy's soul. So I used them. And secondary sources, yes, I, I did use them. And it's, that's more for colour and pace. But the original sources are so good. And in fact, this Orderic Vitalis, who I 
mentioned, I, I think it's quite clear that he spoke to the sole survivor from the white ship disaster. And so you get this incredibly vivid explanation of how the disaster unfurled. Now, the importance of that disaster for those who aren't versed in 12th century history, Henry, as you say, you know, he was this very cruel, very powerful, very decisive king. He managed somehow to get his possessions on both sides of the channel in order, didn't he? There's an element of Greek tragedy in this, actually, Sam. That's how I see it, without having to hopefully state it too much in openly in the book. I think he was cursed from the beginning, really, because in the medieval mind, because first of all, he seized what wasn't his by right. When William Rufus died with an arrow through his chest in the New Forest in 1100, the agreement that William Rufus had with the eldest brother, uh, the eldest son of uh, William the Conqueror, but the eldest brother of William Rufus and of Henry I, was the Duke of Normandy, Robert Curthos. They had an agreement that if, if either of them died without a son and heir, the other one had the right to the other dominion. And so, you know, Robert Curthos was coming back from the First Crusade, he was out the way, and Henry seized the throne. So I think in the medieval religious mind, this was usurping the, the throne. So he was always going to come unstuck in the medieval mind. And then secondly, he tempted God again because he married one of the many Matildas in this book, was a princess of Scotland. Very, very clever choice by Henry because he could combine the blood he carried of William the Conqueror and Rollo and the great sort of uh, Dukes of Normandy with the progeny, the, the descendants of Alfred the Great, which was Matilda of Scotland, was from that bloodline. But Matilda, we're pretty certain, had been more than just staying at a nunnery. She seems to have been practicing to join a convent when the option came of becoming queen. And, and actually, interestingly, Henry I and her seem to have had a love connection, which is very unusual at this time. But beyond that, the, the religious chroniclers sort of leave it hanging there that, you know, she basically divorced God and her oath to God to become queen. So she had it coming too. So there's this sort of bubbling up of sort of something's going to go very, very wrong for Henry I. And so when the white ship disaster happened, they all sort of went, oh, well, that, that was bound to happen. Something like that was bound to happen. Because Henry, having grabbed the throne in such sort of scurrilous circumstances, is now left without an heir. And yes, he's got this one born in wedlock son, William Atheling, who is supposed to inherit the whole shebang. Can you paint a picture of the white ship disaster itself and what, you know, this pivotal moment and what we know of it? Yes, I think it's one of the great moments of history. And I'm older than you, and I, I'm probably one of the last generation of English people who had a very, very broad base of historical teaching, for better and worse, you know. So this is a, a story of such magnitude, and yet it's, it's basically a, a vehicle accident. So Henry I, has managed to do the most important job, provide an heir, and the second most important job. Over the four years up to 1120, he successfully defeated his great enemy, the King of France, Louis the Fat, great name. So he uh, approaches the Norman port of Barfleur in November uh, 1120. He's been on the throne for 20 years in England. He's been ruling Normandy for 14 years. Everything's in order. I mean, he cannot have been in a happy position. England is peaceful. Normandy is sort of under control. 
then the enemy are defeated and he has his one legitimate son with him, as well as a handful of illegitimate ones. But as we've already established, they, they, they have no uh, credibility as well. Yeah, a handful, though. I mean, he was a tremendous shagger, to use the technical term. He was the, the, the most, if I can turn that slightly, <laughs> <laughs> the most fertile monarch we've had. Um, and he had, we know of 22 illegitimate children, the one legitimate son, William Athling, and the one legitimate daughter who is slightly older, um, Matilda, another Matilda, so we might call her Maud, because she's also known as that. And that was it. So everything was riding on the back, dynastically, of William Athling, who was 17 at the time uh, that he got on board the white ship. And so, yes, for a pen portrait of the disaster, Henry arrives, this man steps forward, who's captain of the white ship, which is quite clearly a, a magnificent vessel and huge by the standards of its day. We know that the Mora, the flagship of William the Conqueror, we know from the Bayeux Tapestry had 16 oarsmen and was considered a, a very large ship. The white ship had 50, five zero oarsmen and it was white. I don't know why it was white, but there's possibly a connection to a, a Vikings associating white with celebration, but it was a really impressive vessel. The captain says, it was my father's great honor to be captain of the Mora, the flagship of your father when he captured England in 1066. It would be my equal honor to take you back in glory to England. Now you've defeated the French and uh, I, I demand that privilege. Henry being a practical sort of man just said, well, I've made my arrangements, but the white ship looks magnificent and I think my son would enjoy going on it. And so William gets on it and two, other, two, of, two of the illegitimate royal children get on and a, a plethora of the most glamorous and powerful uh, figures from Anglo-Norman society uh, and great bureaucrats. Henry was a, built up a, a system of bureaucracy on both sides of the channel. And they get on board and everyone is so excited to have the future king, William Athling, on board that they start to party while Henry's sailing for Southampton. And then they think it's not enough for them to be completely drunk. So they pass the wine around the crew and they indulge. Everyone's having a, a high old time. And then as they push off from Barfleur to head on what should have been a 10 or 12 hour journey north to England, the cry goes up among the sort of drunken hoorays on board saying, let's, let's try and beat the king back to Southampton. And everyone thinks this is a great idea. The oarsmen bend their backs and they are really good oarsmen. We know that they were sort of veteran and, and, and very powerful. And then an absolutely extraordinary mistake happens because the, the coast of Barfleur is, it has rocks along it. And the captain drops the sail, the mainsail, before they clear the rocks. So it's now going at an astonishing speed, the white ship, in the middle of the night on a calm sea. But they hit the one thing you really shouldn't hit outside Barfleur. It's, it's key berth rock. I mean, it really is very, very obvious at low tide, but at high tide, it's just under the waves. And they hit that hard and um, rupture the, the side of the white ship. And something I learned while I was writing this book, really almost nobody in early 12th century England and Normandy could swim. Really, it had to be part of your job. Maybe you retrieve fishing nets for a living. But as a, it wasn't a, a pastime, it wasn't a, a skill that people had. And the panic sets in and people fall into the channel. And we know that William Athling would have survived. He was bundled into the one little rowing boat on board by his bodyguards and was being rowed to safety on the coast of Normandy. When he heard the, the call of his sister, the Countess of Perche, begging him to come back and insulting him for his cowardliness and in leaving her in, to her death. 
So he orders the little boat to turn around. And then, of course, these people thrashing around in the water see it going by and haul themselves onto it. And the weight of bodies on this small boat takes it down along, along with the heir to the English throne. And um, we know all this because the one survivor is this, it was probably the, the most humble passenger on board, a man called Burrow the butcher. And I'm not a scientist at all, but I, 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 I tried to work out why he survived. So A, he managed to scramble onto a piece, piece of mast, so that gave him a, a hope. But so did other people and they died. But the aristocrats were wearing, uh, and the, the senior government figures were wearing silks and, and sort of wolf skin or whatever, you know, very, very fancy clothes. Whereas he was dressed in the, the sort of offcuts of his trade, goat skin and sheep skin. And they, even when wet, do impart some latent heat. So he survived and he's found early the next morning by fishermen. And he has this extraordinary tale to tell that yes, uh, William Athling and many others have died. Am I right in understanding you just recently, last week or the week before, you went to dive to try and see the remains of the white ship. Is there, is there anything to see there? There is, it's extraordinary. So we worked out where it, obviously out of Barfleur and we knew what time and tide, and it's, it's, it's a busy tidal area and went with a, a diving team from Oxford University and a, a, an archaeological team. And they found what they call an ancient shipwreck. Now, it was, we were there too short a time. We're going back on about the 5th of July, hopefully with the right permits, et cetera, to, to see what else we can find. But it was under the mud. There was just a tiny bit sticking out of a three meter long ancient vessel. And all I can say is, is repeat what the the archaeologist said, which is that the, the composition of the construction, where the metal nails were and the wooden nails, make, made it a, a, an ancient ship. And the divers did their research before. And although there were a couple of um, Napoleonic privateers went down near there, you know, 200 years ago, there's no record of other great ships going down at that time. And it is part of a great ship there. So you know, until it's confirmed, I'm not going to jump in the air, but there was huge excitement. There was a lot of uh, screams, actually, when the divers came up and said, my God, we found something that looks very significant. And it would be amazing. I mean, it's 900 years old. To be absolutely honest, when we set off on the ex expedition, I assumed that if we were very lucky, we'd find a few very old nails. But it, it, it's all I can say is it, it, it looks pretty promising, but we'll, we'll know more in, uh, in a few weeks. So this is a new discovery, if you like. Yes, yeah, new. I, in fact, I don't. I we couldn't find any record of anyone doing a, a scientific dive, diving around there. You know, we you, you see people diving along that coast, but I don't think anyone's done a. You know, they they were dragging very complicated magnet finding things on the back, and I I, I don't really understand it when they when they when they went ping. And um, that's why the divers went down there. But yeah, it is a brand new discovery. And frankly, whatever it is, it's a very, very, very old ship and it would be wonderful to see what it is. Would they, knowing which rock it was that it hit, you'd think it would have been quite easy to find it before now. The Keep the key Earth rock is a constellation of rocks around a main one. Right. So it's not it's not that easy i mean the area we were looking at was probably the size of a football pitch and so we, I, we were lucky to find it and I, I you know it's, it, I, I stress sam i honestly i couldn't say that it is that but it is a very interesting discovery well we, we must hope we'll keep us posted um, 
Now, how did the disaster of the White Ship, I mean, it slightly reminds me of this Munich Air disaster, because it wasn't just one who went down, it was the whole shebang, mm. you know, as I think you put it, the flower of the Norm- Anglo-Norman nobility went down with that ship. How did it change Henry as a, as a king and in terms of his position? Well, that's a very good question, because this was a personal tragedy for him, but it was a dynastic disaster. There was a, a huge reluctance. We've already uh, worked out that he's not a man you wanted to upset, but nobody really wanted to tell him. But equally, his main courtiers had lost relatives of their own, so they had to hide their grief. Eventually, a little page boy was sent in to break the news to him, and the king looked in disbelief, then bellowed, then fell to the ground. And, and they say, of course, this isn't true. They say he never smiled again in the remaining 15 years of his life. But there was a marked shift in him and he, he, he did become morose. And we'll never know the answer to this, but it's quite interesting that before the white ship tragedy, he fathered 24 children. A couple of months after the tragedy, his, his first wife, the mother of uh, William Etheling and, 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 and Matilda had died uh, a couple of years before, he quickly remarried. There was this imperative to get another male legitimate heir. And he married uh, the fair maiden of Brabant, Adelisa of Louvain, who was uh, apparently incredibly beautiful. But I'm very sceptical about that because every time the chroniclers write about somebody very important, they're either the most handsome or most beautiful person ever. So we don't know. But she was thought to be, I'm sorry to say, you know, but we're, we're looking at a sort of medieval breeding program that she seemed to be a good candidate. And the 50 something year old king kept her by him at all times. And I, no, no children resulted. And it certainly had nothing to do with her because after the king died, she went on to have half a dozen children with another husband. So I suppose you wonder, you, you asked me what, what effect it had. Did it make the king impotent, this tragedy, or, or, or something went wrong anyway? He did not produce another child of either gender in wedlock or out of it that we know of. So you end up with this situation where as he's getting older and older, and, and you know, he was of great age for that period anyway, he realized that he had to have a plan B. And his daughter, Matilda, had married the Roman emperor, what we call the Holy Roman Emperor, although they weren't known like that at the time, but you know, a, a ruler of a big chunk of Europe who died of cancer. Another Henry, and, hopefully. Yes, another Henry. God, there's so many Henrys and Matildas. Henry called back his daughter who was widowed to become the, uh, a, a useful successor. It's interesting that he didn't see her as, as his heir. I think he was planning to live long enough for her son, whoever that would be, to become his heir. But in the meantime, he had all his uh, leading men swear to uh, honor. They did an oath, as you say, these oaths are meant to be binding. They all made a public oath in front of the king and in front of each other that they would support Matilda as the successor but they didn't really mean it and when the king died that's when you realize the full impact of the disaster of the white ship because he died in 1135 famously after a surfeit of lampreys apparently he ate too many eel-like objects you'd have thought one would be enough but anyway he dies and there is no no great appetite for honoring the king's wish and in fact, interestingly, the one man of great note who got off the white ship before the disaster happened, Stephen of Blois, who is Henry's nephew, dashed across the channel and seized the throne. And that's the beginning of the what, what later became known as, as the anarchy, a really bloody civil war of 19 years between Stephen and the king's 
daughter Matilda. What's odd about that, that is that the it's sort of delayed action civil war, isn't it? I mean, Stephen rushes across and is sort of welcomed with open arms, at least to start with. Yes, if you look at the character of Stephen, people liked him. And that's probably where he went wrong. Nobody really liked Henry. They feared him and respected him. But the old adage went during his reign, Henry I's reign, he imposed the law to the extent that a young maiden with a purse full of gold could walk from one end of the country to the other unmolested. This was not the case under Stephen. He liked to be popular. He liked the pomp of uh, being a king, but he didn't really like the hard graft of being cruel and making sure people behaved. So after about three years of increasingly poor kingship, people began to remember that, oh, they had actually sworn an oath of allegiance to Matilda. And uh, the, the posse on her side got larger and larger. And then she arrived at Arundel, Arundel Castle on the south coast with an army and a very able half-brother. I mean, I have to say, if illegitimacy hadn't been a, a barrier, then the Earl of Gloucester, Henry's favourite and eldest uh, illegitimate son, would have been a hell of a good king, I think, because he was good, at, good in battle, which was a very important part of it. And that was really it. Was after three years of Stephen failing, the, the, the option of Matilda came about and then it was utter bloodshed. You know, they said that it was a time, the monks wrote, it was a time when God and the saints forgot the land and blood settled on the kingdom and all. It really was at a time when order was at a premium. Um, it, it was a time of total chaos. What did draw you to this as a subject to start with? You know, you, you probably needn't necessarily be a historian. You, know, you have, have <laughs> you're in a... a an aristocrat yourself, you, you could live a life of leisure. Do, what, what made you think, I want to write about this and I want to do this? I've always worked, I've always had a sort of um, very strong work ethic, generally. It was something my mother instilled into me, you know, don't just hang around and, 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 and you know, float about doing very little. So I've always done that. I've always loved history. I mean, I studied it at university, but I've li I like the writing process and I like to, this sounds rather pompous actually, but I like to bring back stories and individuals from history to people now who I, I think have been wrongly forgotten. And so that's the theme through all my books. I look for a, a flashpoint in a reign that tells you an enormous amount about a period. So the white ship, yeah, I start with the disaster of the white ship. It's the central plank of the, it was an unfortunate use of word plank since that's what gave in. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's the central strut of the story. But really it's about a lot more. It is about, I mean, I, when, when I was uh, pitching this to the publishers, they, they looked slightly sort of dumbfounded. It seemed a bit obscure, but I reassured them that it's basically Game of Thrones meets Titanic with an element of sliding doors thrown in. And then they got it. So it's all about pitching the story right. And actually, I, I honestly, I mean, this is with no superiority at all. I didn't realise people didn't know this story until I went about five years ago. I went to, at the drop of a hat, I went to give a speech. Somebody pulled out of a, a speech at Leeds Castle and I went to give it. And it was on the Queens of England of history. And I threw in Matilda as one who should have been queen because of the white ship, but wasn't. And I realised people didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I spotted that, you know, a few months ago was the 900th anniversary and, and publishers love an anniversary. And it gave me the, the, the freedom to, to, to address this story. And in fact, my previous three books were on the English Civil War. And I do, I do find Civil War fascinating because they tend to be incredibly bloody. Look at the American Civil War. And part of the, 
issue. Obviously, Americans are always affected by very increase, very big increase in the effectiveness of uh, rifles, etc. But the essential problem you have with the Civil War is that there's no down season. You know, there's not a campaigning season and you all go home. You are living cheek by jowl with your enemy and you're going to get stuck in. So I find that really interesting, just as a human thing. I, I, I'm not, I would go one further and say, I'm not even a, a narrative historian. I'm, I'm a people watcher. And I like to look for real flashpoints in the past that show a lot about human nature. So that's it. I've downgraded myself several times. I think we've now reached the bottom of my achievements. <laughs> <laughs> We're becoming very humble. Well, you mentioned sliding doors. I mean, it's obviously academic historians do look down on this sort of exercise, but just you must have wondered what would have happened, do you think? What would the world look like now if the white ship disaster hadn't happened? This one random drunken accident. Well, it would have had very, very profound effects. I mean, obviously, that the cast of our history books would have been mightily changed. We wouldn't have had King John or Richard Lionheart or whatever. But I think much more profound than that, I think we would have remained a rather isolated part of Northern Europe. We'd have been worried about England and Normandy and holding on to Normandy. Because the Plantagenets came in, this was the great compromise to get out of the Civil War. King Stephen was allowed to carry on with his ineffective kingship, if he dropped swords, as it were. And in return, his sons were ruled out of the succession. And Matilda's eldest son, who was Henry I's eldest grandson, Henry II, came to the throne as a Plantagenet. And of course, you know, the, the ultimate result is we got 300 odd years of the Plantagenets because of the white ship. But your, your question is going deeper than that. I, I, I wonder, I think possibly the Reformation would have come sooner. We'd have been part of that Northern European set that would have gone for Calvinism or Lutheranism perhaps sooner. There would have been no Hundred Years' War because that was brought in because of the, the, the Plantagenets, huge possessions in other parts of France. For better or worse, I think the English would have been a far less significant race in the Middle Ages. That's what I think. Well. Well, on such strange accidents to history time. Charles Spencer, thank you very much indeed for your time. Sam, thank you. I enjoyed it. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.